Welcome to the Parish the Thought Show. The opinions of Brian, your host, and his guests have not been sanitized or scientifically tested. So please, consume at your own risk. Now, here's Brian. Ladies and gentlemen, and whoever else is listening again, welcome back to the show. My guest today is Brian Swan. Brian is a principal broker and attorney with over 20 years of experience in the real estate industry. Most agents know him through the Stringham Real Estate School, where he was the president for several years. Through his experience in sales, brokering, education, and law, his experience lends him an expertise in the industry that few, if any, have. He now operates his own brokerage, V Real Estate Agency, where he focuses on training and coaching his agents to think like lawyers, perform like business owners, and rise to a higher level in their real estate practice. Once again, he is here to help me unpack the Burnett versus NAR verdict that just came down a few days ago. So grab your notepads, get comfortable in your cushy little chairs, and enjoy this massive dump from his brain. Brian, welcome. Thanks, thanks you for uh, joining the show and bringing us your vast expertise on this crazy NAR lawsuit that's happening. So, I'm I'm a novice when it comes to this, and I think why I wanted you on is because there are so many opinions running around in our you know real estate circles in Utah and probably everywhere, but at least here. And me being relatively new agent. I don't know what to believe anymore or how to even interpret what's, you know, what it is, how it's going to matter, how it's going to affect us or if it will affect us and all that. So, yeah, no, uh, happy to be here. And you're right. Like there's, there's opinions swirling all over and uh, you know, the opinions are what they are. They're, they're agents, they're brokers. They're trying to navigate it the best they can. They're getting their information usually from uh, some kind of real estate news story. Um, and that was especially true uh, before, well, before the verdict went mainstream by the New York Times, which was about the day after the verdict was read, uh, it was just really the real estate news outlets, you know, uh, Inman News, TheRealDeal.com. Uh, those are the housing wire was another one that really kind of followed it. And so they were getting their sources primarily from there. Uh, also, you know, they get their sources from the press releases and the talking points that NAR puts out or the local associations. So by no means do I consider myself an expert on the topic, but I have followed this pretty closely, and I'll talk about that coming up uh, from the beginning when when the cases were filed and and read the actual pleadings. And you know my background in the law has given me kind of a unique insight into the case. I've been able to follow the legal posturing and the legal theories. Um, so I do know a little bit more, you know, from that perspective, a more global perspective on this suit than say most agents. And, and so I am, you know, happy to be here and tell you what I know and the legal theories surrounding it and what's going on. Let's maybe back up in terms of timeline. When was this suit filed or is, has this been something that's been in the works for ages and it's just now coming to the light of, you know, 
Yeah, this is about this about five years coming now. Um, And this is not the only one. Uh, There's been, you know, number of suits. There's actually another case uh, very uh, identical to this one that happened in Missouri. uh, that The verdict was just read. There's a sister lawsuit is what it's referred to uh, that's taking place in Chicago. And that case is slated for trial in April. So that one's coming up next. Um, that one will probably be, uh, you know, a month long trial. Uh, it's a little bit bigger. Um, it's encompassing more defendants. It's going across state lines. It's getting into multiple MLSs in different states, NAR, multiple brokerages, different states, uh, kind of the Northeast region. So that one's coming down. Um, and then, you know, I'm sure a lot of people know, or maybe you have heard, uh, new lawsuits have been filed on the heels of this verdict. So, there's going to be quite a bit coming just on the legal theories that we're going to talk about. And maybe you're going to talk about this, but since all these are kind of piggybacking and starting on each other and happening, what's been happening in the industry that's making this an issue? Is it, is it, are the practices that we've had forever in place wrong or crooked or, or people, you know, what, what, what's, what's the genesis of this, I guess. So to understand the lawsuits, you got to go back, um, what it would it be about 40, 30, 40 years. Okay. So the National Association of Realtors has been around for decades. I mean, it's it's a longstanding organization. Uh, it's been a bedrock uh, to the real estate industry since, you know, early 1900, maybe even before. I don't know the exact date of its inception. But um, throughout the time that NARA has been around and the real estate industry has been around, there have been no buyer agents, okay? The buyer agent model really came around in around 1996, give or take a year. Um, And that is, my understanding is that it came off of a lawsuit to which buyers weren't represented. And so NARA shifted its, its model Uh, started facilitating an an economic model for agents in the industry that would facilitate buyer's agency for buyers, okay? Because up until that time, there was no buyer's agents. Uh, The the industry operated on what's called a sub-agency model where the listing agent represented the seller, uh, put the home on the MLS, and then it was an open offer for other brokers to help represent the seller in procuring that buyer. So essentially it it sounds wonky because for the last 30 years, we are so used to the strict designated buyer agency model. But for decades, it was, uh, if I bring a buyer to sell this home, I'm not representing the buyer, I'm also representing the seller. And me and the listing agent both represent the seller as we help this buyer navigate the transaction. So that's what it was up until 1996. Then in 1996, coming on the heels of a, a suit, uh, NAR decided to, to change the model and they, they made some rules and policies to effectuate a buyer's agent effectively representing the buyer and being able to be paid for it, not by expense of the buyer necessarily, and have that full representation all the way through. So if you got your license after 1996, you don't know any different. You know, you don't know what it was like before. You may have heard stories, but you're really only used to the current model of how we do it. That current model of the buyer's agency uh, structure and being paid through the MLS 
cooperative agreement, which is what we're going to talk about, that is the crux of the lawsuit. So a lot of people are thinking it's about the 3% or the 6% or, you know, anything. It's not the number. The number was not the, the dispositive element in the lawsuit. The sole issue is the, the very structure of a seller paying a commission to a listing agent and then the listing agent splitting that with a buyer's agent, effectively making the seller financing their competition. And so by way of the seller financing their competitor, like the, the other side, the opposing party, um, competitor is probably not right, the other side, their opposing party, uh, that party is now negotiating against the seller's interest, right? The buyer's agent is trying to drive the price down. And the seller is paying their commission to do it. That's what the lawsuit is all about. If you think about it, um, it and it, it's really kind of a wonky thing because if the if the buyer's agent is successful in negotiating a sales price down ten, fifteen thousand dollars, they've done a really good job for their buyer. Their commission only changes by about two or three hundred dollars. You know, the, the 3% of that purchase price, even though the purchase price has been dwindled by thousands, their commission is only marginally decreased. And so these sellers and the attorneys have consulted and they've gotten, you know, they see this is a, this is a problem. I'm effectively paying the other side to drive the price down and I'm paying them the same, you know, nickels and dimes of difference. So that is what it's all about. Um, it does, you know, from a legal standpoint, it creates a conflict of interest on the buyer's agent. And I don't think that's something you could really argue against um, because it's it's kind of like in court. If the defendant, if their attorney is being paid by the plaintiff, I mean, where's the defense attorney's loyalty to who writes the check or to who their client is? And so there, there is a legal conflict of interest by the whole arrangement where the seller is paying the other side or at least financing the other side's commission to work against them. That, that does create a problem. All right. So now that this verdict has come out, could you explain you know, kind of what it is and then how that's going to affect or, or how it won't affect, I guess? I mean, you, you've said in many, you know, social media comments that it's going to, you know, affect yeah. us a lot and we need to be prepared for it. Yeah. I think, um, I think before we get to the verdict, I should probably backtrack and, and talk a little bit about the posturing of the suit. Uh, what this, cause what the verdict means right now, um, is really only directly related to the defendants in the case. And that would be those in Missouri as well as in our, but, you know, will it affect us here in Utah? Will it affect other people? Not as a direct result per se. It may have some kind of collateral, but we kind of need to, to talk about that. So um, the way our court system works, for those that, that may not understand, uh, this lawsuit was launched in the Federal District of Missouri. And so the defendants, everyone under that subject matter jurisdiction, that's who the ultimate results of the lawsuit will affect right away. Okay, that's it's kind of bound for that area. Um, now, Nara said they're going to appeal and, and then it kind of, you know, raises a bigger kind of a bigger scope or a bigger umbrella of what could be affected, uh, depending on which court this goes to. But 
in the immediate, it's it's really isolated and contained to that jurisdiction, the Missouri jurisdiction. All right, those those MLS defendants that were looped in, uh, those local associations, those uh, local brokerages or the big brokerages that do business there. So it's really contained there. Um, what we what we need to kind of be prepared for, what I see as coming down the pike on this is that by virtue of the jury finding the defendants, NAR, uh, all of these brokerages, the associations, all the, the co-defendants liable uh, for antitrust violations because of the business model, um, I see that opening the door to identical lawsuits in many, maybe, maybe all jurisdictions moving forward. Everywhere where NAR does business, there's a realtor association. You know, that's now on the, the target board for plaintiff's attorneys to say, well, you know, there was a, a positive, you know, in their, in their mind, a positive verdict here for the plaintiffs. We can get that here if we have the exact same theory, make the exact same arguments. And that's really going to be the legal logic is copy this lawsuit and spread it across the board. So I do see um, it opening up the door to, to litigation everywhere. Is, is, do you think that those people that might be doing that are, are will be doing it to change things or, you know? Yeah, that's a good question. Money grab. Yeah, I've heard the money grab argument. The money grab argument to me is nullified by the fact that the plaintiffs did not let NAR settle this. Okay, so if you go back to um, the, the procedural history of the lawsuit, we know from the press reports that REMAX settled. And um, uh, anywhere, the uh, formerly Rilogy, uh, parent company of the big brands like Coldwell Banker, C21, you know, all of those guys, uh, they were able to settle. So Remax's settlement was $55 million. Uh, from my understanding, anywhere settlement was around $80, $83 million, something like that. Um, but within the settlement agreements, it wasn't just money. Uh, the terms of the settlement were that the companies had to change the way they were doing business um, with the buyer's agency construct. And part of the settlement agreements, at least that we can infer, because Anywhere and Remax have both come out after their settlement and saying, we no longer require our agents to be members of NAR. So we can kind of assume maybe safely that Perhaps that was a term of the settlement agreement is to kind of change the whole construct of if you're a member of NAR and how you're doing buyer's agency and how the buyer's agents are getting paid and all of that uh, to at least some degree that those had to be uh, part of the conditions of the settlement. But those were the only parties that settled. Um, you know, NAR was still on the hook. Uh, the other defendants, Keller Williams, Home Services of America, uh, many others were still left in the lawsuit, either because they refused to settle, which I don't think is the case, um, or that the plaintiffs refused to accept any settlement offers. And if that's the case, then we know this wasn't about a money grab. This was about really changing uh, the very infrastructure of how the, the business is done on the buy side. They wanted to see it go to trial. These companies that, that settled, does that and again, this is, you know, my lack of law knowledge. So please pretend I'm six years old and the rest of my audience is six years old and try to explain this. Is settling meaning they just don't have the resources to fight it or or does it, 
are they okay with uh, like they're like okay with white flag we give up we were wrong uh, it's a good question yeah it's a good question um there are a number of reasons that a company or a person could settle a lawsuit uh, it could be, you know, the very obvious that the writing is on the wall. They see that they're going to lose. And so we got to cut our losses and, and settle. Because if you settle, you can usually settle for an amount less than what the damages will be at trial, right? So you'd rather do that and cut your losses. Uh, the other reason, I mean, a lot of companies settle because it's just the cost of doing business. Um, it's expensive to litigate. Uh, and a trial is even more expensive. Um, so it's one thing to litigate up till trial. It's another thing to go through a trial. Uh, it's another thing to go through the appeals. You know, it, it is a costly, our system is costly. There's no getting around it. So in, in many, many cases, settlement is just the cost of doing business. The public perception, of course, is typically that there is some guilt there. That's what's inducing the settlement. Um, but that's not always true, you know, and, and that's not always fair. But that is the public perception. But like I said, there's there's many reasons that they can settle. For companies especially, it usually comes down to an economic decision as well as a legal, you know, a legal analysis. So it just depends on the facts of the and the lawsuit itself, how things are going. Sometimes you can get a pretty good reading on the judge, uh, you know, how the motions are going. Um, you know, up till this trial, NAR and the defendants tried to dismiss it procedurally. It failed. They tried to uh, get a motion for summary judgment, uh, which is basically saying court, a jury should not decide this. You should, because it's just a question of law now. Did we you know, violate the law? That is a question of law. Uh, and so they tried that. The judge said, no, it's going to a jury. So, you know, you kind of get the reading on the on the wall that um, maybe this isn't going well because we keep losing motions. So now let's let's cut our losses and get out before it goes to a jury, which in this case was not good. You know, a jury trial was the best thing that the plaintiffs did um, because you're taking these normal people from Missouri, you know, not a lot of uh, NAR corporate type of people in the jury pool, I'm sure. Um, and so they're just kind of standard homeowners. They've been through the process, um, you know, just regular folk. And they're looking across the, the courtroom at, you know, a billion dollar conglomerate that controls a real estate industry, uh, has a huge handprint in federal lobbying. Uh, all of these huge conglomerate real estate agencies, you know, and, and, I mean, that's that's not good optics just going in because uh, people have their perceptions of big corporations. Right. So um, the jury, I mean, that was that was a great thing for the plaintiffs to do is have this jury by trial, uh, trial by jury and let average people see the industry the way the plaintiffs are arguing that it should, you know, that it is. That was a big, big factor in the in the trial. I've only been chosen for a jury one time. And that was 25 years ago. Is that, and if uh, this could be me watching too many damn movies or watching suits, I don't know, but selecting of juries, can those be, do they try to dumb down the jury, I guess, or, or, or find people that they know are going to be ignorant of this or angry about this versus a, you know, true, fair choosing of a jury that's just random people or do they, or do they craft and, 
I like, I need this kind of person on my jury. I don't know. Have you ever yeah. had to yeah. do a jury selection? Or I can speak to that. Um, I have not done a, a jury selection. It's called voir dire in the law. Um, I haven't done a voir dire or worked on any kind of jury, jury handling, but, you know, do of course know the procedures and the mechanics of how it all works. Um, the court will issue out the jury summons to, you know, random citizens within the jurisdiction. So that's kind of the starting point is you have to understand these, that this is a random draw. There's the, the, the parties themselves do not have a hand in the ultimate pool that comes in for jury duty. So that's the starting point of the neutrality, right? I mean, we don't know who these people are. They just have to report one day. Uh, from there, then the voir dire uh, starts and the the attorneys will craft questions that they want the jury the members to uh, answer, and those questions you know are are it depends <laughs> depends on who you talk to. Some say it's a science, right, and it's a science of psychology. Others say it's just pure luck. Uh, in fact, I had one judge tell me he thinks it's more luck than than science or math. But some people swear by it that there's an actual science to jury selection. So you know, whichever theory you subscribe to, the attorneys are are sending the question or are submitting the questions. Each jury member uh, that has been called for jury duty has to answer. Once they get all the, the answers and kind of get a feel for who these people are, uh, the attorneys are making notes along the way. And they typically get two automatic dismissals. So if an attorney hears an answer or, you know, sees an appearance or a presentation that they think are going to be adverse to their or biased toward against them, they're going to just write that jury down to get rid of them right away. So they get a couple dismissals without question or objection. And that kind of starts narrowing it down. And then from there, uh, it's kind of a matter of argument and some, and you take turns saying, we want to dismiss this one. We want to dismiss this one. And and it kind of goes and you just whittle down to, you know, 12 or six or whatever the law is for that state and jurisdiction. Trying to find the most unbiased group yep. of people, right? And of course, uh, each attorney is trying to keep the ones that they perceive are going to be friendly to them. So, but the other side is going to be trying to eliminate those, you know, so they just take turns and, and whittle it down. And then that's the pool you have at the end of the day. So this is basically, this is playground choosing, choosing for ball for sports. Yeah. <laughs> kind of. It, that, yeah. That's exactly right. Was the last yeah. chosen. Are you kidding me? Uh-huh. Yeah. And sometimes, you know, there's some objections and stuff, but uh, I mean, that's the voir dire selection process is, um, is pretty, you know, just randomized uh, in the sense that we're, we're taking turns and we don't know what they're going, who they're going to eliminate. We could take a guess. They don't know who we're going to eliminate. And by the time we get to the final 12 or the final number, um, you know, it should be a healthy mixture of people who the attorneys on both sides perceived as friendly to their case. And that's a good thing. You know, we kind of want you know, for lack of better words and playing on politics, kind of a bipartisan jury, right? We want a mixture of opinions and perceptions going in, even biases, to be able to then deliberate on the evidence and come to a unanimous decision. So it's it's a good it's a good process. Okay. I always wondered about that and wondered if it was tainted somehow, but yeah. I mean, you see that movie, uh, what was that movie? Runaway Jury, I think, um, with Gene Hackman, uh, based oh. on a uh, John Grisham novel, where you know they got cameras on the the uh, 
uh, attorney's lapels and it's transmitted to a van and they got analysts in the van saying, eliminate that juror, eliminate that jury. And they try to fix the jury. Yeah. That's, uh, that's probably not the way it goes. Yeah. No, I've I've seen 12 angry men. Does that count for something? (laughs) I haven't actually, I haven't seen that one, but I wanted to. That's a phenomenal. That's a classic. It's and, and the whole movie is like two camera angles in the same room. Wow. So that's, you know, that wouldn't fly well in today's right. society because right. there's a lot of character development and time and people would be like, this is boring. I'm out. Right. Okay. Yep. The, um, and if I'm, if I may be bouncing all over the place. So if, if I am rein me in and kind of keep me on track here, uh, NAR, the people saying that, you know, some comments I've seen is that it may not even be necessary. Is NAR a good thing for the industry or it, are we paying all these dues for no reason just to be belong to the club, you know, pay to play thing. What? I mean, that question is, um, I mean, there's a lot to unpack there, but I, I really think that's a matter of personal opinion. Um, you know, there's a lot of, of good things NAR does. Uh, they have advocated for the industry. Um, they are a big lobbyist in, in Washington, DC. Uh, I don't know to what extent they really get involved in state matters. You know, they might leave those up to the state associations. Um, So, you know, those are a lot of the arguments that you hear in favor of NAR. Um, The arguments that you hear opposing NAR is, well, I mean, very little federal regulation actually affects the housing industry. I mean, yes, there is the tax credit. That was a big deal uh, when NAR, you know, stepped in to try to preserve a tax credit. Um, and, you know, some housing laws and discrimination things, things that are actually under the, the federal Congress's jurisdiction. But in truth, that's not a lot. You know, the housing industry is really a state matter. You do have some federal legislation, but not a lot. You know, discrimination laws, for example, that's something that that spans the country. Taxes spans the country. But beyond that, you're dealing with contracts, you're dealing with transactions, uh, you're dealing with those kinds of things. So unless it's some major piece of legislation that will affect the entire, you know, industry in uniformity, like RESPA or, you know, some lending stuff, um, you know, there's not a lot that that a federal lobbyist can get into that that affects the individual homeowner at the end of the day. At least that's my opinion. And, you know, like I said, I'm going to stress because I know some people are very staunch defenders of NAR. Uh, there is some legislation that they lobby, you know, taxes, uh, lending stuff, that kind of stuff. I get it. that That is there. I do concede that. But on the routine transaction, it really is kind of a state law issue. You're dealing with contracts and, you know, financing with within that that transaction. Um the, the arguments opposing NAR are kind of like, well, where was NAR on the uh, the Dodd-Frank Act? You know, if they're such a high power lobbyist, where were they on that one? Because that one really just lopsided the financial industry. In fact, it was such, in my opinion, bad legislation. It created a whole new federal agency called the Consumer, Protect, uh, Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, the CFPB. Was that back in like 2008, nine, right after that? It was after that. Yeah. Yep. The legislation, uh, it was enacted 2012 ish, 2010, somewhere in there. But, uh, the court, uh, the Washington DC court of appeals recently held that the CFPB is an unconstitutional entity, the way that it was set up. Um, 
So, you know, there has been a, a number of problems with the CFPB. They've been involved in lawsuits, you know, uh, all over the place based on their structure coming out of Dodd-Frank's uh, creation of them. So, you know, the opposing argument was if they're such a great lobbyist, where were they on that? You know, lending regulations have tightened immensely uh, compared to what they were prior to 2008, which, you know, to some people, that's a good thing because we don't want 2008 to happen again. To some of the more free economic, free market purists out there, they're like, no, we, that's a bad thing. Let the market do what it's going to do. If it crashes, it will correct. In fact, the economists just generally say that it will correct faster than if the government intervenes. And there's been a number of economic studies that have said that once 2008 crashed, the reason it took so long to get back was because the government did intervene with things like Dodd-Frank. Had the government left it alone, the free market would have corrected itself within you know, a year or so, rather than how long it actually took to get back up and going. So there's a lot of arguments that kind of contradict on the, the lobbyist effort. Um, and I, But I think the biggest argument against NAR is that the, the state associations and the local associations do more for the individual realtor than NAR does. You know, NAR did come out with kind of a health care option for, for health insurance. Um, I've never looked into that. I don't know how effective it is. I don't know if anyone uh, has, but, uh, you know, that's one thing they've tried to do. But the state associations are great. You know, they do a lot of good work for the, the agents locally and as they should. Like I said, I think real estate is more a, a local thing than a national thing. So to your question, is NAR good? Is it essential? I think that's just a matter of individual opinion. There's no way I could give a blanket answer that wouldn't make any, you know, all people happy. Uh, what? With what? Come on. You can't make all people happy. I know, unfortunately. But um, this, this lawsuit is interesting, the verdict, because uh, you know, the settlements between Anywhere and Remax, they did come out and basically remove the requirement that their agents be members of NAR. Uh, to me, that's very fascinating. Um, and in reading through some of the court documents, you can tell that that you can you understand why. I mean, what NAR has done with the practice uh, is, in my opinion, the jury got it right. So they're trying to to dissociate a little bit. And I think that move is strategic to, you know, uh, release themselves of liability to not continue to be associated with that business model. And that way they can shield further lawsuits going forward. Uh, so I think that's smart. Um, but that's very interesting to me that now we're starting to see these big brands with multiple, you know, franchisees underneath them uh, remove that requirement. So, NARS membership revenue may potentially dry up, um, but you know we'll see what happens. Yeah, that's because it's a big, definitely a big boy. What one point something, one, one and a half million of yeah. us? Yeah, yeah, in the club, and many of those come from these big brands that were involved in the lawsuit. So you know, I don't think every agent in those those brands are, is going to remove from NAR. They have just removed the requirement to do so. So you are going to see you are going to see a number you know who feel like NAR doesn't have the value. They don't want to be associated with. They don't want to pay an extra 100, 150 bucks every you know year for a membership that you know they're just getting healthcare solicitations on their phone all the time. You know whatever their logic and justification is, I do think we're going to see you know. Uh, a number of, of agents remove themselves from NAR. I've been growing quite accustomed to the uh, 
healthcare insurance people right. every week. I, yep. you know, kind of, it's, you know, it's like a family member reaching out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think I've bought three policies this week. <laughs> um, you had mentioned uh, that, that was a comment I was looking for earlier about, you know, brokers need to change and do things, not just use the talking points of NAR and, and these big associations. You, you, you said something like real estate, the way it should be done. What do you mean by that? How should it be done? versus? Yeah. So I mean, let's hit those talking points for a minute. Um, you know, as expected, NAR was quick to throw their press release out and their official response to the verdict. And then on the heels, you see state, state associations, local associations giving their, their press releases, their opinions on it. As expected, you know, they disagree with the ruling. They're going to appeal it. It was blatantly wrong. And, you know, this industry and the way things are done are, are great. They're fantastic. And those are the things you expect. It's kind of, to me, it's like telling somebody out there to ask my kids how great of a parent I am, right? Like, there's an inherent bias. There's an inherent pressure to give an answer. Um, it's it's just not an objective press release, in my opinion, and, and it shouldn't be. It's coming from the defendant, right? So, you know, in my position, um, in my position, I have been fortunate enough being an attorney uh, to work at Stringham, you know, real estate school back, you know, a few years ago before it was acquired. And I, I really had a privilege of spending days researching topics. And one of them was antitrust law. It was to make some antitrust content for one of our classes. So I went into the court cases. I researched the law, read these court cases. And, you know, what I found is NAR is no stranger to lawsuits. The associations are no strangers to lawsuits. We have a lot of jurisprudence in our court system against MLSs, against associations, against NAR. Typically, about 90% of the time, 95% of the time, they're successful and they prevail, but the lawsuits keep coming, right? Um, and so it was kind of striking to me that even though you know, they, they're always prevailing, they're still under legal scrutiny all the time. So something is there, something's going on. It, it, that's how I interpret it. Um, and then with this lawsuit, I, I looked at the filing, the initial complaint when it was filed, uh, being the legal nerd that I am, and I read through it, it's like 50 pages or so. And I thought to myself, with everything I've read on antitrust law in researching these classes, this lawsuit has some teeth. Like I can see this prevailing and the press releases and everyone talking about it was so dismissive. Oh, NAR always gets sued. They always win. There's nothing to this. You know, we've done this battle before this song and dance. We know how it's going to end. Everyone was very dismissive of the lawsuits. I think I was even amongst the attorneys, you know, um, the attorneys in the industry were very dismissive of it. I feel like I was uh, out on an island in saying, no, I, th I think there's something here. I do think this could prevail. And if it does prevail, this lawsuit will undercut the very structure of a main component of the industry. And that actually goes deeper than what people think. I mean, we're talking about even to the extent of the need for an MLS, if the lawsuit is successful, and is upheld on appeal that 
a seller should not be financing a buyer's agent commission, it calls into question the very need for an MLS. Um, and there's actually some testimony in this case on record uh, that I was reviewing last night where that was admitted that this buyer broker commission rule to pay the buyer's agent commission is the very structure of the MLS. If that goes away, there's no need for an MLS anymore because now you can just advertise your property across any different platform and just get it out to the public. And you know the buyer's agents, the public come, they see it, then they go straight to the seller. The only difference between KSL Homes and Zillow and my, my brokerage website and the MLS the only difference is that buyer's agent commission offering. That's why all the buyer's agents go to that one place. It drives up the traffic, which helps the SEO for the public domain. And then it kind of has a circular effect of reinforcing its dominance. But you remove the BAC and agents no longer have to go there. Now they have to go to a bunch of different places because a home advertised on KSL may not be advertised on Zillow or vice versa or the brokerage may have their own and they don't put it out anywhere else. So you kind of have to go to all these places to find homes. So you remove the BAC component, which is what this, this um, lawsuit tried to do. And you essentially disrupt the whole MLS system. So you're really dealing, people don't understand this was a huge lawsuit. It has huge implications. And in my opinion, brokers have to, they have to accept the reality. Like, you know, to now getting to your question with that setup, what is the reality going forward? Well, let's let's first start at square one. What's going to happen on appeal? Everyone's talking about an appeal, an appeal. Well, first we got to figure out if NAR is even going to appeal. I mean, a one point three or one point five billion dollar verdict—that is an expensive verdict. And we haven't seen the final judgment yet where the judge, according to the statutes, could tack on treble damages, which include attorney fees, you know, other damages that the statute lays out. So we're looking at a upwards of $5 billion lawsuit or $5 billion verdict. So regardless of whether it's one or five, that's still a lot of money, right? Does NAR have that? You know, probably not. Most people think they don't. Uh, they will have to put up a bond for that amount if they appeal it because they got to preserve that money for the, the verdict and the final judgment. And then they can appeal and go forward. So that it, do they even have the money for bond? You know, and then you got, well, there's bond financing companies and, you know, all of that stuff that comes into play. So that's step one. Do we even have the money to appeal? You know, I've heard some chatter that Keller Williams may not even appeal their side of the verdict because they don't have the money to put up the bond for an appeal. So it's an expensive verdict, number one. But assuming that it is appealed, now everyone's like, well, we always went on appeal. We always went. On. I don't think NARA is going to win on appeal. Um, you know, I'm not in the business of predicting things. Uh, I'm not a fortune teller. But, you know, it's, it's, this isn't a matter of did the jury get it wrong? That's not the question on appeal. You don't appeal a jury verdict. You appeal procedural problems in the case and in the trial that led to the jury verdict and what it was. In other words, had this error not happened, the jury would have reached a different conclusion. So you're, you're appealing procedural things that happened in the court, uh, in the trial and in the case. 
to appeal a jury verdict just on its face, the um, the appellants have to show that the verdict was against the manifest weight of the evidence. In other words, the court of appeals is going to be very deferential to a jury verdict. And for good reason, there's been a lot of studies out there where they show that juries get it right. I mean, juries are not stupid. You get a lot of people, they're looking at all the evidence, they're filtering their opinion in the deliberation, and most juries get it right. I think it's like 96%, you know, they get it right. That's what the studies have shown. Don't quote me on that. I'm going off memory from law school. But um, it's, it's a very high number, high percentage that they get right. So the court is very deferential to jury verdicts. They're not going to overturn or disturb a jury verdict unless the court can see that just the evidence in the record that they have in front of them is so against the, the verdict, like the, the, it was just a runaway jury, right? That's when the verdict will be overturned. So NAR and the defendants, they have a high burden uh, on appeal. This is not, I am not buying the arguments that, oh, we've got a great legal theory and we're excited to appeal this. You know, I, I don't buy that at all. I think that's the talking point to rally the wagons and the troops in the industry to let them know that don't panic yet. Meanwhile, I think they're panicking and I think they're trying to figure out what to do because this this is not going to be an easy appeal to win by any stretch. So with that said, and with that in mind, you have to go back to the individual industry, the, the local brokers, and they have to realize that if this appeal or if this verdict sticks, NAR will have to change its policy because in the Missouri jurisdiction, it can no longer do business this way. Okay. So what about the rest of the jurisdictions? Do they keep things the way they are and allow themselves to be sued in every jurisdiction? Probably not, right? Standard business logic would say we got to change it across the board just as a matter of legal liability. So they're going to they're going to change the rule that you don't have to offer any compensation across the MLS. And if that happens, you know, you lose the entire purpose of the MLS. Uh, now you get competitor listing services coming up. And um, it just it creates a whole new dynamic to the industry. So with that all in mind, um, brokers are going to have to be creative. They are going to have to accept the fact that the buyer's agency commission model has changed. I believe it changed the moment the verdict was read. I have not gone on the MLS and looked, but I told my agents in my brokerage that be prepared to start seeing $0 BAC um, in creeping up, right? Creeping up uh, increasingly common. I think some brokerages are going to handle it right away, just like that. Others, it's going to take a little bit of time. Some people are going to just hold on to the status quo and their brokers are going to give the agents advice that, no, no, you know, status quo, we got to see what happens on appeal. I mean, I get it. That verdict didn't apply to us here in Utah, but you hold on to that compensation model like you are, that status quo, and you open yourself up to liability in the same exact legal theory that was just successful in Missouri. So I do think brokers really need to have a gut check on how do we do and address buyer's agent commission. And that is a big problem because it's not as simple as saying, well, let's just do $0 BAC um, and then we're off of liability. 
that has its own problem because as it was shown in the trial, you have a huge boycott problem in the industry. And every time you hear that word thrown around, boycott, every agent gets defensive and they're like, oh, I've never boycotted a listing. I always show a home no matter what the BAC is. But it was proven, it was shown in trial that the empirical data on the industry done by economists shows that homes that offer less than 3% BAC are just not shown. I mean, the industry has done this to itself. It has created layer upon layer upon layer of problems. And it is a hard hole to dig yourself out of because how do you resolve or absolve your liability and offer a $0 BAC and then you can't get anyone to show your home? I mean, we've it's got like, a circular problem. Yeah, and no one's working for free. And if they are, that that's a problem. I wouldn't want someone to do things like that for me for free because I'm not going to get the service. Sure. I Sure. You get what you pay for. Yeah. I mean, there's there's plenty of arguments all the way around. And even if it's not a $0 BAC, anything less than three statistically is showing a significant statistical decrease in showing the home, right? The lower that commission is. And so you're kind of compelled to offer a BAC to get your client's home sold. But in doing that, you're now violating antitrust law, right? So like I said, there's been layer upon layer of problem with this. Brokers are going to have to get creative. Um, I think, frankly, in my opinion, as a broker, uh, I think that one of the, the necessary components is to get rid of the MLS and just open it up to competition. You have to then allow the compensation model to be dictated by the market. Uh, I've told my agents that I see two primary, well, I see three primary avenues that most brokerages are going to take. Each one has its problems and I don't see them lasting very long. You're going to see a number of them do hourly billing. And that makes a lot of sense, frankly. That's how attorneys do it. It's a service-based industry. You bill by the hour. I mean, many service industries do bill by the hour. So that makes a lot of sense. The problem with that is it's a huge pain in the butt. And what hourly rate are you going to charge that is going to yield you a $15,000 commission, you know, at the end of the day? I mean, that hourly fee is going to be, what, several hundred dollars, more than attorney's charge. And so now the consumer and the agent relationship is going to become one where the consumer is like, well, is my agent producing a value that is equivalent or better than an attorney? Um, that's a very good question. An attorney can't go drive around and show homes, but they're certainly more legally astute with the contracts and the negotiations than most agents are, right? Much more legal uh, protective with the liability. So, you know, is an agent worth more than an attorney on an hourly rate to yield 15 grand on a $500,000 home, an attorney on that deal would probably make less than a thousand bucks because they're just reviewing the contract, helping the, helping draft an addendum. And at the end of the day, the client walks out with a, you know, few hundred dollars in a bill. Uh, whereas with an agent, they're paying 15 grand on an hourly basis. So that I don't see working out too well. Uh, the next option that you're going to see is flat fees. You're going to see a lot of brokerages say, okay, 
Well, guys, long gone are the days of $15,000 commissions, but we're going to try to recoup what we can, plus charge a $2,500 fee or a $3,000 fee to represent buyers. Like the homie model or the yeah. model or assist to sell or things like that. Sure, sure. but on the buyer's side, because those models were for the seller. Okay, right, right, right. Um, but for now, you know, we got to figure out how to pay our buyer's agents. So they'll do a flat fee on the buyers. Um, the problem with that is who has two, three, four grand in pocket on top of an earnest money, on top of a down payment to pay a buyer's agent? They, just, they don't have that much money. You can't roll it into the loan because you have appraisal conditions. You've got regulate, you got financing regulations on that. So, um, you know, I don't see that working out too well either. What I see happening is that the industry will resort back the way it was before 1996, uh, where buyer's agents are not represented by agents. Um, it's a sub-agency model. And, you know, does that have problems? Depends who you ask. Everyone that I have heard talk about that says that the sky is falling, how unfair it is, how complex the transaction would be without a buyer's agent for the buyer. Well, for decades, buyers did it and they were fine. Yes, there's lawsuits, but there's lawsuits now. We have both sides represented and we still have lawsuits. Like it didn't cut down or change the, the nature of liability and people messing up in a transaction. Um, yeah, so it doesn't, I mean, it just goes back to the way it was. And I think the talking points to say it's going to be horrible is to try to preserve the status quo. Um, but in reality, nowadays, especially, there's a lot of attorneys in the market. And a buyer, like I said, going to get a REPC reviewed is going to cost them less than a thousand bucks to get a review, negotiation help an addendum drafted, put the deal together. It's going to be less than a thousand bucks for, you know, the average attorney. I mean, is that a better deal for the consumer than, you know, a flat fee of a few thousand or hourly rate leading up to thousands? Um, or just, I mean, to me, I don't think the sky is falling for the consumer. I, I don't think it's going to be as complex as people think. The only, the only dynamic that's going to change is that buyers will call up the listing agent to see the home because they don't have their own agent. The listing agent will have to do more work. The listing agent will have to drive out, open up the home when they don't want to because there's not a buyer's agent to open up the home. The listing agent is going to have to start earning their money, right? Which frankly, that's been a big argument too, is are the listing agents worth what they're getting paid? Because they put a sign in the yard, especially in a good market, and they don't have to do a whole lot. It's the buyer's agents that are doing all the work. So listing agents going to have to definitely be more involved, but on the consumer end, you know, uh, that listing agent should uh, kind of facilitate a dual agency role. Uh, that will be very, very, very common uh, to contact the lender, make sure financing is in order, make sure inspection is in order, all of that stuff for the buyer, because they're going to have to make sure the transaction goes through. Um, but in the end, I mean, a dual agency like that is no different than a dual agency with the way it is right now. And even if the buyer doesn't want to work with the, the, the agent, the listing agent, they'll have an attorney that will help them through and, you know, tell them what to do and how to do it. So I don't think I, I just shake my head when I read some of the press releases because it is painting such a doom and gloom picture for the consumer 
Um, the nature of the lawsuit honestly was not doom and gloom for the consumer. It was attacking a structure that the NAR and the MLS have created that that really does make it hard for the consumer, right? Sellers are financing their, their opposing agent to negotiate against them. That is a serious problem. That's not pro-consumer. So, you know, I, I don't think the sky is falling. What I do think is that buyer or brokers will have to get, blah, blah. brokerages will have to get creative. They're going to have to figure out how they want to deal with buyers. I think it's inevitable that buyer leads will not have any value going forward or minimal value at best, you know? So they're going to have to figure out what they're going to do in their brokerage. I do see a mass exodus in the industry because most agents, especially new agents, they get their business and they start building their business from buyer leads. So they're going to have to get creative in their own business model, their personal business model of how to get listings or how do we make money off a buyer? It may not be $15,000, but is there some crumbs that we can pick up on the floor here and make a business out of it? So the ones that survive are going to be more business minded uh, rather than like holding on to this doom and gloom picture that you, you have to just accept what's going to happen and start changing. Sorry, long answer to your question, no. but I try to be pretty thorough with this because I do think there's a lot of implications that people really aren't thinking about with this. No, I appreciate the long answer because I, I'm, I'm one of those people that I'm, I'm just kind of blown about by every wind of doctrine. I guess it's coming down because I don't know any different. Yeah, being so new, you know, new in the industry that I am. So, sure. So, no, I appreciate that perspective. What haven't I asked you about this situation that you feel like we need to talk about and share with people? Probably the suit itself. Um, you know, we haven't dived really into the the legal theory. I know I've seen a lot of armchair lawyers, you know, given their arguments about how the jury got it wrong. Um, the Facebook you graduates. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Facebook <laughs> law school. Um, I think that would be valuable to listeners as well as to go through some of that if you have time. Yes, let's make time. Let's do that. All right. So, you know, we've talked about what it means going forward. We've kind of talked about some of the, the little procedural history and we've talked about the appeals. Um, let's talk about the lawsuit. Um, so this lawsuit uh, as everybody knows, was lodged under the legal theory of antitrust, right? Sherman Antitrust Act. The Sherman Antitrust Act, the federal statute is very short. It's only a sentence. Uh, it is not a convoluted, you know, complex piece of legislation. It's just a sentence. But that one sentence, as it was enacted back in the late 1800s, has created and bred mountains of case law. I mean, we have a lot of complex commercial litigation in our country's history on antitrust law. And so it's it's kind of amusing to me. I get it, it but it's always amusing, amusing to me to read the comments, to even hear other attorneys uh, give an opinion on an antitrust case like this, because there's just no way that you can give a solid legal opinion if you are not well-versed in this case law. Um as I mentioned earlier, I do not consider myself an expert in antitrust law at all. I consider myself more of a researcher and I spent a lot of time at Stringham researching the antitrust cases. So 
I do believe I know more than the average attorney out there who's, you know, focused on this area of law or that area of law or, you know, working for this place or in-house counsel here. They just don't have the time to dive into the case law. And that's really where the law has taken shape so that you can understand the potential outcome of cases. So I know enough to be dangerous, uh, but I by no means am I an expert on this. I also have had a very unique experience you know, in, in my career, 20 years in this industry, I have been with, with a number of brokerages, including a few different, um, you know, discount brokerages, flat fee brokerages, ones that aren't charging the full traditional commission that everybody has been. Um, and, and at one of those in particularly, uh, there was a potential lawsuit that was going to be lodged. And I had the privilege of reviewing the the litigation on that the potential the lawsuit checking the legal theory checking the facts um it was against you know many actors in the utah industry and uh so i am pretty familiar i've consulted on that piece of 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 that complaint with uh antitrust lawyers in washington dc so i i know enough you know that i feel comfortable really opining and that's kind of why I've been active on Facebook with a lot of groups is to kind of rein in the crowd to let them know that this was a serious lawsuit and there was some teeth to it. And you don't really know what you're talking about if you're just knee jerk defense, you know, without really looking into this stuff. So with that said, the theory of the lawsuit uh, was essentially that because NAR has a rule that says when you list a property, number one, it must go on the MLS. That's the clear cooperation rule. That's the MLS rule. You know, that's the industry rule. Um, I mean, that's just standard practice. If it's not going on the MLS, you still have to file the property with the MLS. You have to file an exclusion uh, form. The MLS is still going to control the data. But we also know from the economic data and the studies that homes that aren't on the MLS don't sell. I mean, we're talking over 90%, and this was proven in the case at trial, over 90% of listings are sold from the MLS. If you're not on the MLS, you got less than a one in 10 chance that you're going to sell your property. That creates already some antitrust antenna going up. Okay. So from there, uh, if you're a member of NAR, you got to be on the MLS. When you're on the MLS, you're more likely to sell statistically. And then on top of that, if you're going on the MLS, you must pay your opposing agent's commission. All right. That's the basis of the lawsuit, as we've talked about. In order to prove an antitrust claim, the, the plaintiffs have to show that there was some type of conspiracy or agreement between the defendants, you got to have more than one of one defendant. So multiple defendants that have engaged in an agreement to basically harm the public, harm the consumer, fix the competition, fix the market, fix the prices, right? Whatever the end result is, it stems from a conspiracy. I've seen a lot of comments uh, about this verdict saying, well, I never conspired with, you know, so-and-so at Keller Williams to set a certain commission rate, or I never, 
you know, my brokers never talked with other brokers about commission, right? So where's the collusion? It's not, that's not how the, the law works. The, the conspiracy element does not need to be proved by direct evidence, okay? It can be proved by circumstantial evidence. The plaintiffs did not need to go into the Missouri courtroom and show the jury that Keller Williams, Berkshire Hathaway, Anywhere Real Estate, NAR, the MLS has all sat around a table and concocted a plan. They don't need to show that. That's not what the law requires. What they need to show is that there is some evidence, circumstantial evidence at minimum, that, that can support the inferences that they did agree to create a structure that was anti-competitive and hurt the market. They did this because, I'm going to read you some of these things. This is straight from the court record. Okay. Um Straight from the court record, I pulled this uh, last night and was doing a bunch of research on it. Uh, this is when the defendants filed for summary judgment to try to stop the case from going to trial and get it done and, and out. And the court denied the motion and let it go forward. So here's just a few of the things that show that the industry, whether or not they all sat around in a table and colluded, there, there was enough circumstantial inferences to say there was collusion. There is an agreement that the industry is working together uh, to fix prices, to have the seller pay in that commission, to do things that are anti-competitive. So for instance, uh, the court writes that uh, who's the CEO of uh, Home Services of America, uh, he testified that, quote, coupled with the duty to cooperate, which is in the art, the code of ethics, our duty to cooperate with uh, other agents and brokers. The unconditioned offer of compensation is a chief rationale for the existence of the MLS and a core component of organized real estate. Also stated in a scripted video training, the only way you can eliminate all competition is to include them. Now you think about that for a minute. In what other industry does somebody come out, a big player in the industry like Coke or Pepsi, and say, well, the only reason, the only way we can get rid of our competition is to include them? It's just, it's, it's contradictory to free market competition principles. Uh, the court goes on. Founder and current executive chairman of Keller Williams coined the term coopetition to describe cooperative competition among trade associations, local boards, and multiple listing services. Uh, then at the time, NAR's CEO believes that there are, quote, threats to the system. He believes that, quote, brokers, agents, franchises, independents, the national, state, and local associations, the institutions, societies, councils, and the MLS must, quote, organize as one and commit to each other with urgent resolve. These just go on and on. Comments made from the heads of these organizations that are very inclusive in nature rather than competitive in nature. And the court also notes that with these big organizations, many of them sit on the board of NAR, the National Association of Realtors, and they know about this rule. They reinforce the rule. They haven't sought to get rid of it. And so you know, as they're out there competing against each other, they're also on the organization that are putting rules in place to help cooperate with each other. 
So that is one piece of circumstantial evidence that the court looked at. Um, another is the training. I mean, this was mind blowing to me. Uh, the defendants provided training to brokers and directed them to offer a 6% commission rate. Um, the court says Keller Williams trained its brokers to develop an economic model, which provided, quote, a standard 6% commission. Home services, uh, they circulated training materials that instructed brokers to, quote, always have 6% written on all listing agreements. Um other defendants, for example, Remax trained to have, quote, have the commission typed into the listing agreement before speaking with sellers and to tell sellers, this is what my company charges. I mean, it just goes on and on. Uh, the evidence that the court looked at to say, you know, it looks pretty much like you guys are conspiring to fix the commission, to have this buyer broker rule, to include each other in an organized fashion, to defeat competition of the market, which would drive downward pressure on commission prices. And people just don't know it, you know, and understandably so, because they're not reading the court docket. They're not lawyers. They don't know where to go. You know, a lot of this is legalese. Um, so they don't go looking at it. But you know, from from just this court memorandum, the, the court's decision on summary judgment, you can see why it went to trial. You know, there was some serious things that are uh, alarming under, under antitrust law. Um, at the trial, I read some reports that uh, the plaintiffs, you know, they had an expert witness. If I remember correctly, it's an economist out of Texas A&M University who uh, specializes in antitrust economics. He took the stand, talked about his analysis of the real estate industry, and he told the jury, he said, in my entire career, this is the most blatant violation of antitrust law this industry is that I have ever seen. Well, to rebut that, uh, NAR brings its um, in-house economist to the stand, Lawrence Yoon. I think Lawrence Yoon is very smart. I have no problems with him, except you calling your own economist that works in your organization that's being sued to testify about, you know, this model. Um, I just thought that was like not a very intelligent move. I mean, I wouldn't have... If I was the defense attorney, I would have definitely looked outside and maybe they did. You know, I only read the report that Lawrence Yoon uh, testified. So perhaps there was others, but it just it didn't rebut, you know, an independent economist out of Texas A&M. So there's problems with that approach. Um, and this is this is an interesting thing, Brian. One, uh, as I was reading, getting closer to trial, uh, the reports on this. Uh, I read one report that the chief legal officer for NAR was going to testify at trial, and they expected that she was going to testify that this compensation model for buyer's agents and their uh, their services is essential to the market. It has made home buying feasible for buyers. It has given them representation. It's been protective for them. Um, you know, really making the case that this is a really great model. And I have heard that argument before many, many times, even from people locally. Uh, it's a great model because it, it provides buyers protection. It makes home buying easy. It makes it more affordable. All of these things I have heard. The problem, though, 
The moment that I read that article, I knew NAR was going to lose. And the reason why is because uh, you learn in law school that if the law is not on your side, you argue the facts. If the facts are not on your side, you argue the law. The only time you ever argue policy is when you got nothing to argue. And to get up on the stand and argue that this is a great model for the, the consumer and society, that's a policy argument. There's no basis in law for that. There's no basis in the facts for that. That is a policy argument. And the moment that I, I heard they were going down that road, I was like, they got nothing. They got no argument. No wonder Remax settled. No wonder anywhere settled. Like, they got no argument if you're going to rely on policy. So, um, yeah, I think I think my point is in, in going through this, I think it's important to go into some of the court documents because, you know, it really does show that there's more to this than than people think, you know, um, it's it's not as clear cut as, oh, my broker or I never sat across the table and, uh, you know, talked with another competitor about our prices. That's not what the law requires. It's it's a little bit more broad than that. It's a little bit more complex. And the plaintiffs did an excellent job of proving their case. The jury deliberated for only two and a half hours. I mean, the evidence was there. You got 12 differing opinions and a two and a half hour deliberation. Either the jury was incredibly reckless and they just wanted to get out of there or the evidence was that apparent. You know, I mean, it's it is this is not what people are thinking it is. So was the evidence there or was the jury reckless? I guess you come down on the evidence was there side. Well, yeah. I mean, according to the um, the court's opinion on the summary judgment motion, the court basically said that there's enough questions here to put this to a, to a jury. You know, I'm not, this is not a legal issue anymore. This is a fact issue. So at that point, uh, you know, it goes to a jury and they look at the facts. And I guess you could argue that the jury was reckless. If that was the case, we're going to see that in the appeal. But like I said, the, the appellants have to show that the verdict was against the weight of the evidence. So if the jury was reckless, then the appeal will be a no brainer and NAR will win on the appeal. Um, but if there was any basis in the evidence to support the verdict, you know, I mean, the short deliberation just shows how much evidence was there. there it was all right so the the new agent who just got their license and then the agent who's been doing this for 30 40 years what do they do moving forward it's a good to, question uh, yeah educating yourself or learning or changing i mean what do they do to change or you know that's it's a good question question i mean uh, you know, on one hand, you're going to see some agents that are going to represent buyers at no cost, right? If there's not a BAC offered through the MLS, they're going to just do it for free because they want the experience. I mean, that's not uncommon in any industry. You've got apprenticeships, you've got internships, you know, you kind of got that, that, that no pay or low pay entry to start building some experience. I think we'll see a little bit of that, uh, for new agents. Um, but I also see a lot of people trying to negotiate commissions into uh, the contract, right? I see experienced agents going that route. 
Uh, they'll try to have the seller agree in an addendum to the REPC to pay the BAC, which is totally legal. You know, you can totally do that. Um, the problem with that is, is, you know, sellers are going to hold all the cards now. Like they know from the publicity of these suits that uh, uh, we we can control the buyer's agent commission here. Like we don't need, we're not beholden to the 3% because we signed the listing agreement. We can now control how much that buyer's agent's getting paid. So I see it being a frustrating time for the experienced agents as well. Um, but I, you know, I, I ultimately I see um, this reverting to the days of sub agency. I see buyers uh, walking from buyers agents. I see them looking for attorneys uh, to review their stuff. I see a select few agents getting really smart to make some money off buyers agents. We've talked about it in my agent in my brokerage with my agents. A few different you know, business model ideas that they can start implementing uh, to make some cash off the buyers if it goes to a $0 BAC across the board. Um, so there's options. You just have to be creative. And, but I don't think a lot of people are creative and I think they're going to panic. I think they're going to leave the industry, honestly, which is why I think, you know, the associations and NAR coming out with all of their statements, all of their press release. I think it's a lot of damage control. You know, agents and members are their revenue source. They've got to keep giving hope to the industry to maintain their revenue. But uh, I mean, the law is the law. And according to what I've looked into with the, the verdict here, there's some there's some evidence that supports you know, that verdict. So I do see things changing. I think the ones that succeed are the ones that are going to be creative. They're going to have a good broker that supports them, uh, that puts their head together on the drawing board and they come up with some out of the box solutions. I think that's the only way forward. Speaking of creative brokers, you're a relatively new broker. What's uh, uh, what's your brokerage and, and how can people reach you if they want more details and, and maybe just to reach out? Or are you Are you available for just answering questions for people if they want to? Get more detail. Yeah, so uh, my brokerage is called V Real Estate Agency. For uh, victory? What's that? V for victory or what? What's the V? Yeah, yeah. So everyone asks, what's what's the story with the V? Um, it's a good question. What I, in 20 years of being an agent, being in this industry, I, I, uh, I had a hard time feeling like I was building up somebody's name, right? Like you see some... Uh, brokerages that are based off the broker's name. And here I am selling for them, uh, building up that brand value, that name value. And I didn't like that. Like if it's my sales, I want to build my name. I don't want to build, you know, someone's name that I hardly see in the office because I'm making money for them. Um, but I also didn't like a trade name because everyone has their own opinions on a trade name. There's some trade names that are really catchy, you know, they're cool, but they turn other people off. And uh, you're, you're hard pressed to find a trade name that everyone thinks is, is a great name. So it really narrowed down the options. And so I thought, well, you know, I want the agents, my agents to build up their own brand value through their own name. So what's the best way to do it? By law, I have to have a brokerage name, right? Um, but how can I minimize that to such an extent that the agents can take more control over the brand they build? So I chose a letter um, that I felt was versatile enough to act more as a symbol rather than a name. 
So of course the letter V could be victory. It could be, you know, vibrant, valiant, voracious, it could be anything. Right. Um, but, but for me, the, the, the design behind it is that a V has three sharp points, right? Three points to the V. We have three values in my brokerage, three core values that the business model is established with on. And that is number one, impressionable marketing. Uh, we spend a lot of time talking about marketing strategies and how to make you and your listings really pop and stand out. Uh, number two is a impressionable skill set, a very competent skill set. And we do that through me bringing the law to my agents. So in all of our uh, weekly meetings every month, uh, we're either talking about the law or we're talking about business. We're not talking about real estate. We're talking about how to build their business or I'm giving them the actual cases and I'm treating our, our weekly meetings like law school. I give them a court case the week before, they read it, they highlight, they take their notes. And the next week we come to the meeting and we have a, a, a lesson on the case and we have a discussion on the, just like they were in law school. And my prerogative is to get my agents so legally sharp that they have the upper edge with their clients. They have the upper edge with other agents. Uh, they are more protective of their clients. They're spotting liabilities where others aren't. They know how to draft addenda uh, in a way that would make an attorney happy with it. Um, so that's where the, the skillful competence comes from. And then the final point of the V is the, the liberation. There's a lot of fear in this industry. There's fears of liability. There's fear of putting yourself out there in marketing. So there's, there's a mental component to help the agents break out of that, to get comfortable with marketing and getting themselves out there to get confident in their business, their approach, competent or confident in the law. Um, so those, those are the three core aspects. And of all the letters in the alphabet, you know, that could be a, a business name for legal purposes, the letter V caps, uh, encapsulates that, those three aspects. It becomes more of a symbol. So I told the agents, you can use the V however you want. You can describe yourself. You can describe your listings, you know, vaulted ceilings, valley views, you know, things like that. Uh, but at the end of the day, this is about a symbol of who you are when you're in this brokerage, how much you're going to grow, how much you're going to put yourself out there, and what you're going to do as a real estate agent. So that's the name of the brokerage. That's the model and the theory. Uh, we spend a lot of time tracking law. Uh, I do. And then giving it to the agents and trying to get them forward thinking with like this lawsuit of how to adjust and, and pivot and build a business around what we can with the results of this verdict. So that's that's what it is. Um, we're having a good time. I picked up a couple new agents this last week and Right now we're we're still a small brokerage, but I'm getting people reaching out, you know, pretty frequently uh, with a lot of interest. So we'll see how it goes. But right now my focus is on those who commit and uh, really with the sole intention of making them as legally sharp and as business astute as possible, uh, so that they can really shine. Well, I know that when I first got into this, my impression was holy crap, the things that we're required to know is like lawyer level. Right. Or, or at least yeah. we're oh, for sure. And I don't, I don't feel, I don't feel like I know anything. And I've been in five and a half years. Yeah. 
There's a court case that happened in um, Washington state uh, back in the 80s, and the court held that a real estate agent is held to the same standard as a practicing attorney because they are filling out contracts, they're reviewing the contracts, they're drafting addenda, which is the same thing as drafting a contract. You are, you are impacting and affecting your client's legal and contractual rights. You are an attorney. And in that case, it was really interesting because the court said, we're not going to require you to get a law license, but we are going to hold you to the same standards as if you had one. So you're, you're absolutely right. Um, and I don't think enough agents really appreciate that. Uh, this You do have to be careful and you should have, you know, some legal acumen and some knowledge and training uh, to be able to navigate those situations. Agreed. Agreed. So when you were telling your, your, your brokerage name, I, Keith, I think, remember when Prince changed his name to the artist formerly known as, and it was a symbol. Yeah. Uh-huh. That, and then, and then you and Elon Musk with X. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was too bad that uh, you have to have some kind of, you know, name legally to incorporate and be a brokerage. So I, I but I wanted a symbol. I wanted something agents could build around uh, rather than build up. Right. Cause I want them building themselves up their brand, not, not mine. Yeah. Uh, so it's, it's as minimal as I can, but it really embodies what we do on a weekly basis in the brokerage meetings. Well, that's awesome. And I appreciate you coming on and, and adding your input to this very complex situation that all of us don't seem to understand as <laughs> well, at least the level yeah. that you do anyway, but I'm happy to be here. Like I said, I don't consider myself an expert and, you know, NAR may win on appeal. You know, I, I, we don't have the full court docket and record in front of us. So I don't know what their theory is going to be on appeal. Um, but I, I do know enough to, to lend an opinion and give some insight that I don't think a lot of people are getting because like we talked about at the beginning of this, um, people are getting their sources, their information from one source, maybe two. Uh, and that becomes incredibly, you know, narrow in, in the scope of what's, what the big picture of what's going on. So I'm happy to give kind of another opinion. I know it's not an opinion. A lot of people like, or agree with, they do want to hear that, NARA is going to prevail, that the industry is going to be untouched. And I totally understand that, you know, and as a broker, uh, sure, I want that to happen. You know, there's there's revenue for brokerages and agents on the buy side. You know, we, we, we want the status quo to stay the same, but I'm not one that just parrots the talking points. I've looked at the docket. I've looked at the case law. And, you know, like I said, I, I've talked to my agents and we are preparing and putting things on the drawing board to do things differently to help my agents as much as possible. Cause I foresee that things will change. And if people aren't accepting that and they're just following the talking points, they're either going to get sued, you know, sooner or later, or they're going to be caught flat footed when all of a sudden, bam, you know, we got a Supreme court ruling that says, yeah, you got to change everything beginning now, you know, now, now, yeah, you're totally caught flat footed. So, yeah, I mean, I'm just trying to let people have a little bit broader of a view and get some things to think about. Well, that being said, where, where are some good sources for people to you know, to try to get as balanced of perspective on what's happening as possible? It's a good question. <laughs> I've looked around. Um, it's a good question. I mean, I I've scoured a lot of sources. What I I think there's um, 
is it RS Media? I think it's the one I sent you earlier. They seem to be pretty thorough uh, uh, with the coverage that they have done on the lawsuits. And they're probably the only source that I actually think is sitting in the courtroom taking notes because they were talking about testimony of the expert witnesses and you know what was said under the witness stand. So they're obviously, they were in the trial. I think RS Media is, um, is probably a really good source. Inman News has been covering it a lot. The problem I have with Inman is that they're they're ingrained in the industry. You know, they are they're part of the industry. So I think a lot of their views are going to be really not objective. I, I think for agents to really be informed, they should be looking at very objective sources, you know, not industry sources. Um, so you know, there's a few. The mainstream media, New York Times, Fox News, CNN, they've all covered it, but they're not really following it. So I housingwire.com has has had some good articles. They've been following it a little bit. Unfortunately, you just kind of have to Google and you know poke around. Um what what I would always suggest if somebody wants to read is Google some of the actual court documents and look at the filings and read the arguments for themselves. I mean, they are public record. Um, the, the decision from the judge that I was quoting from earlier, you know, that's available on casetext.com, you know, and you just put in the, the Burnett v. NAR and summary judgment and, you know, you get the, the case document you can download as a PDF. So, you know, you can go straight to the source like that and start forming your own opinions too. How dare us form our own opinions, right? Screwing no, up the whole system. <laughs> It's a, it's a rare thing nowadays. That, that is. Group think than individual think. But that's hard. I don't want to do hard things. But. Yeah. This has been awesome, Brian. I appreciate you spending the time educating, if nothing else, me uh, and my 12 followers around the world. Um, yeah. yeah. I'm happy to talk with you and your 12 followers. Yeah. Well, you know, maybe we'll get 13. And you know, 13 people, <laughs> well, 13 wiser people on the planet than we did. Uh, an hour. Well, I don't know about wiser, but they'll at least have a different More informed. Yeah. Yeah. So, like I said, I, I can't vouch for if I'm going to make anyone, you know, if, like I said, NAR could appeal and, and they could win out. So, my assessment, my assessment was always that this lawsuit is incredibly dangerous. I personally don't think they're going to win on appeal, but they could. You know, I can't yeah. predict the future. So maybe I'll be wrong and, and everyone will be happy. And like I said, as a broker, you know, that would be good for revenue for us. So, uh, you know, we do want the status quo uh, as a business model because of it, it's helpful to everybody. You are going to see a lot of frustrated agents if that goes away. So, you know, hopefully I'm wrong, but I do uh, offer that more objective legal kind of insight that I don't think many agents are getting, honestly. Well, pull out your crystal ball, dust it off, see if it still works. Cause I know mine's broken too, you know, so we do what we can. Yeah. Mine hasn't worked for years, yeah. unfortunately. Yeah. All right, man. Thank you so much for your time. Appreciate it. You bet, Brian. Good to see you and happy to, happy to join you. Thanks for the Thanks. invite. Thank you again for listening to the Parish the Thought Show. We know you have many podcast options and appreciate that you have chosen us. If you love what you hear, please give us a rating on whatever platform you find us. And don't forget to share, like, and subscribe. If you hate what you hear, only tell us.
You're still here? Click on the next episode for more from The Parish the Thought Show.